Okay, we're going we're gonna to wrap up chapter 8 today and move into chapter 9 of the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans, chapter 8. And, and uh, last week in chapter 8, we spoke, about, um, we spoke about this whole idea of, of election. And uh, in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Chapter 9 picks up a lot on that, but let me just mention a couple of other things from chapter chapter 9 that we didn't touch on in as much detail, and uh, uh, from, from chapter 8. So, so, so this portion that I just read is sort of a lead-in to chapter 9, but then there's this other portion in chapter 8 that I want to touch on a little bit more. That's in verse 35. Chapter 8, verse 35. Chapter 8, verse 35 who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So he's saying that nothing can, can, can uh, separate us from the love of Christ. Everything good is embodied in Christ. Everything good that God comes, which God comes to us, it comes to us in Christ. It says nothing's going to separate us, and it tells us in verse 36 that there's going to be suffering. And it says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And, uh, um, I think of the church. The church Probably uh, some of the most persecuted places in the world are, for, for the gospel, is a, a, the nation right now of Iran. And it's saying that the church is growing faster in Iran than any other place. Isn't that amazing? You have a place where the church is being so persecuted and the underground church is just utterly exploding. And there's something that happens when there's a persecution going on. It actually feeds the gospel. Because it says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. And then you think of the church in China. The Chinese church is being persecuted more and more. And it's again, one of the fastest growing churches is in, is in, uh, uh, in communist China. is one of the fastest growing churches. And so you see that when there's this opposition, the church grows, the church abounds. We are not silenced. We are not silenced at all. And you think, you know, how are we going to prevail in the Islamic world? Well, look at Iran. It's very much because God is doing it. The work is done by God. We go in there and we labor, but the, the success all comes from Him. It all comes from Him. We overwhelmingly conquer. And then he goes on, he says in verse 38, For I am convinced, he says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God comes to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is coming in Christ Jesus. 
Everything good comes through Jesus. This is why I say you can't love Jesus enough. He is just magnificent. Everything. He is the focal point of everything. It comes in Christ Jesus. But all of this love comes to us. So he is saying we are surrounded with this love. Now we move into chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And and uh, um, before I read Romans chapter 9, I want to read a few verses. And they're, they're up here on the board. But I, I, I want to read those. We've read these before in the class, but I want to read those. And starting with Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So, if we are thinking that God should be a certain way, it doesn't necessarily mean that He is that way. His thoughts are different than our thoughts. It's not that they're, you know, they not, need not necessarily be opposite our thoughts, but they're different. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and, and our ways are not His ways. He says, nor are your ways my ways. So if we think, well, God should do it this way, God says, well, um, no, not necessarily. I mean, because He's God. Who does he think he is? God? Yeah, that's right. He's God. He is in charge of this thing. He does this. And so his thoughts are different than our thoughts. So as we read through this chapter 9, I want you to be aware of this. Because chapter 9, 10, and 11 are skipped by many commentators. They'll teach the book of Romans, and they'll teach uh, uh, chapters 1 through 8... And then they'll say chapters 9, 10, 11 are parenthetical, and they'll skip it, and they'll go on to chapter 12 through 16. And, and, uh, some commentators do that, and, and the rationale for that is that you, you have, you have this theology in chapters 1 through 8, and then you have the application of the theology in chapter, uh, uh, in chapter 12 onward. It's, it's, it's how do you live this theology out. And that's exactly what he does, for example, in the book of Ephesians. He teaches chapters 1 through 3 on theology, and chapters uh, uh, 4 through 6 of the book of Ephesians are the application of it. But here in the book of Romans, this is really not parenthetical. This is a key to what he wants to get across. And so I, I, I want to look also at a couple of other, at a few other verses here. So in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one would boast. So he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The faith is not of yourself. God is the one who gives faith. He's the one who gives it. So our faith is from God. Let's look at another verse. Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is the one who's at work in you to conform your will, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He's taking our will and molding it into a way that's good according to His good pleasure. So he can take our will. You think, no, this is my will. I'm. God says, oh, really? <laughs> you think I can't, you know, I can create the universe, but you think I can't take your little will and conform it? God can absolutely do this. He takes our will and he conforms it into his will. And he has special ways of doing it. Like 
causing us to totally break down. And we're like, oh, I'm not quite what I thought I was. And sometimes through just a, a breakdown of everything, he takes our will and he conforms it to his will. So even our will gets conformed to his will. And I want you to look in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I mean, could the man, could our God be more clear? I mean, he says it over and over again. You're like, all right already. I mean, he's just, he's just pounding this in us. There is none righteous, not even one. It's not like there's this mass of hum- humanity and there's a, a, select, a select set among them who kind of walk righteously. God says, no, there's not a single one of you. None of you do this right. He says, there is none who understands. So we think, no, I, I understand. No, you don't. God says, there's none. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. You say, well, there's some who seek for God, and those are the ones he saves. God says, no. You take the mass of human humanity, there is none who seeks for God. None. Nobody is seeking for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not even one. If God did not reach into humanity and save some... There would be none saved. It's not like some somehow, you you, you know, they they, they figure this thing out. No, none. Nobody. I want you to keep all this in mind as we go through Romans chapter 9. Because in Romans chapter 9 through 11, what he's doing is he's he's vindicating God's righteousness through his relationship to Israel. He's vindicating God's righteousness through his relationship with Israel. This deals a lot with his relationship to Israel. And, and, and the reason this is here, the reason this is here is because he needs to go through this because there's questions that can be asked. So what he does in the beginning, in, in the, in, in the first, in, in the first portions of the book of, of Romans, he's dealing with this theology and he deals first of all with the theology of God's righteousness. And then he says that the pagan Gentiles have missed it, the cultured Gentiles have missed it, and the Jews have missed it. This we all covered. He, he, he deals with all of these issues. And then he goes on and he, he talks about, as we just read in Romans chapter 3, that everyone is sinned, that, that there's none righteous. Then he deals with our justification, which is our past. We are justified in Christ. Then he deals with our present, our sanctification. And then he deals with our glorification. That in him, we become like his son. And we've dealt with all of those issues already. Because in 8, he dealt with the glorification. So, and then he just deals in Romans chapter 8, we just read how nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us. So he's made these promises to us. But some can ask a question. They say, okay, if nothing can separate us from God's love, how come it doesn't look like Israel? That It, it kind of looks like, has, has God kept his promises toward Israel? Because if you look at it, if you look at it, that, that um, why are there so few among Israel 
that are seeking God. Look at the nation of Israel today. Uh, you can you just walk around in Israel. How many people are seeking God through His Son Jesus Christ? Not many. It's estimated one percent of the Jews in the world, of the 15 million Jews in the world, there's 150,000 Messianic Jews, meaning those that recognize Jesus as the Messiah. That's 1%. 1% of the Jews in the world are recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. So has God's promise to Israel been, been broken? Or has God's promise to Israel somehow been subsumed by the church? Is the church then fulfilling God's promises? Um, uh, and so what he's going to begin to teach us is he's going to vindicate God's righteousness in relation to Israel and into his relationship. And he's going to speak about uh, the remnant of Israel and he's going to also relate this to the church. So the first question that can be asked is, is uh, um, in Romans 1 is, is that uh, uh, these things, these questions start coming up. These questions start to arise. Is there some failure on God's part? Is there a failure on God's part here? Because, uh, uh, and, and then he's going to s- speak about, no, there's been no injustice with God. Uh, another question that, that, would, that could arise here is, how can the Gentiles trust God's promises if they don't seem to be fulfilled to Israel? Which is not a bad question. You know, God's just made to us these promises of how much he loves us. Can we really trust that when we look at Israel and it seems that there, there's there's uh, uh, things that have not been fulfilled? Well, what we're going to see is Israel's failure is due to spiritual pride and their attitude of self-sufficiency. That's what he's going to show us in, in, in this portion. He's also going to show us that Israel's rejection is not final. Israel's rejection is not is is not uh, a complete rejection. There is a remnant, and he's going to speak of the remnant. And then he says he's going to say that Israel's rejection is not final, meaning that the entire nation of Israel will one day come around. And we see that we know that from the book of Revelation that they're going to come around uh, midway through the tribulation. The entire nation of Israel is going to turn to him. Uh, uh, th- the other things that we're going to see is that there is going to be, uh, in, in Romans, in this portion of Romans 9, 10, 11, he's going to talk about the salvation of the remnant. He's going to talk about the acceptance of the Gentiles. And he's going to talk about the future restoration of Israel. And the third question is going to be, has God, has the gospel nullified God's grace to Israel? And his answer to that is emphatically no. He says, may it never be. It's emphatically no. So all of these questions are going to be answered for us in Romans chapter 9. So let's let's begin reading in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ according to the flesh. Who are, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Okay, so he starts out in a very unusual way here in chapter 9. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. Now when a person says to me, look, let me be honest with you, I immediately question, are they being honest with me? Because does that mean if you had not qualified it, I should suspect you? Now I know it's just a figure of speech, it's become a figure of speech, but it just, it just cues, cues me in that, that, okay, let me listen really carefully. Because, uh, um, why are they saying this? Should I there, should I assume normally that, that you're not honest with me? But Paul says, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not, uh, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. He doesn't normally speak this way. And I think what he's trying to tell us is he is so emphatic about this, he's trying to say, I'm not even exaggerating here. This is no exaggeration, because you know as well as I do, preachers have a tendency to embellish things. You know, if, if, if something happened, if, you know, some earth-shattering thing in their mind. But he says, look, I, this is, this, this, he says, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. And being, being rabbinically trained, he's substantiating this by giving two witnesses. He says, my conscience is a witness and the Holy Spirit is a witness. He says, I'm not exaggerating at all. Let me tell you where I am in this. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So he has this tremendous sorrow and unceasing grief. That word grief actually means pain. His, he has a physical pain within him that is brought on by his grief. And he says he carries this with him. Now why would he be doing this? And I'll tell you one thing as I've meditated on this, is that sometimes when people speak of God's election, that God chooses people apart from works, utterly apart from works, they think, well, this person's really mean. They don't feel what I feel. How could they suggest such a thing? That, that, that God would select <clears throat> one and not another. And, and sometimes you have to look at it because sometimes these same people will well acknowledge that God has selected the nation of Israel and all through the Old Testament He did something with a particular nation that he did not do with other nations. And if, 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 uh, if election be a crime, if it's wrong to choose one person rather than another, then to choose one nation over other nations would be a bigger wrong to select out one nation. And some people think that if, if you should say that, that God chooses people apart from works, that's somehow really mean. And I think what Paul is saying here is, you think I don't care about people? You think you care more about people and their salvation than I do? Let me tell you what troubles my heart continuously. Here's what troubles my heart. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Unceasing pain. That pain never leaves me. I'm not exaggerating here, guys. This is what he's saying. I have a physical pain inside me 
that I always feel a wrenching inside me because of this. He says, For I wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Paul is saying, I love the Jewish people so much, so much. And this is why when you see Christians say that they don't care much for the Jewish people, you got to look at Paul and say, well, look at Paul. Paul didn't say that I would give up my salvation for the Gentiles. He said, I, I wish that I could give up my salvation. He says that I would be accursed. That's anathema. Or, or, or the Jewish term is harem. Harem means, mean, means this, this, this total separation from God. God's judgment reigning upon the person. This word harem. So, uh, uh, sometimes I've, I've, I've been accused of this by, by my Jewish br- brethren. And, uh, um, that, that, that they, they, they will suggest that, that I am haram. But, uh, Paul says that, that I would take this accursed, I would take this anathema, this haram upon myself. If I could, I would take it upon myself. If I could see my nation saved. Now, how many, how many people would say, I would rot in hell forever for the sake of other people? How many people would do that? Now, a parent might say that for their child. Because a parent's love is just crazy big love. But not for a whole nation of people, many of whom are strangers. Nor does Paul even say this about the Gentiles. Paul says this of his own nation. He says, I would give up my salvation if I could. It can't happen. But if I could, I would. I wish that I could. You question the love that this man that is about to teach us election has for people? It's much greater than the love most of us have for the unsaved. This man's love for the unsaved is enormous. He says, I have this pain. And he says, and this is for the sake of my brethren. Generally, when we read Paul saying brethren, he means brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does he do here? He disambiguates, as Wikipedia uses this term. We have this disambiguation. When Here he's saying, when he speaks of brethren, he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh, meaning that those whom I'm related to. And then to be more clear... To have a further disambiguation, he says, who are Israelites. He says, I am talking about my, my, my Jewish brethren. I would give up my salvation for them. That's how intense it is. This heart that he has for the lost is something that we should strive to have. So a few years ago, like, uh, Five years ago, I started getting really concerned about where I've come in evangelism. I have always had a heart for evangelism, and people will say, oh, well, that's because you have the gift of evangelism, and somehow use that as an excuse so that they don't have to have that same burning passion. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I never have had the gift of evangelism. I have a burning desire to see people saved. And you say, well, what makes you think you don't have it? Because if I look over my life, 
I've had very few people saved other than in the last five years. So it used to be I would get maybe two or three people to to get saved every year. You say, well, that's a lot. That's that's not a lot if you're an evangelist. People who are evangelists, like like uh, Bill Bright, who started Campus Crusade, I'm telling you that man could have a conversation with a person for five minutes in an elevator and the person is on their knees getting saved. That man had the gift for evangelism. There are people who have the gift and it is utterly extreme. I always had a burning passion to see people saved because I love Jesus so much that I want others to experience this love. So I started to study because I was just distraught. About five years ago, I started to say, okay, how did great evangelists pull this off? How did they do this? And I started reading the biographies of great evangelists and their books, their biographies, their autobiographies, and the things they wrote about evangelizing. And the two people that I finally keyed in on that were helping me the most were Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield. George Whitfield was from England, and he he was he had been a student at Oxford, same generation, same Bible study as John Wesley. I mean, this this was probably quite a Bible study as college students, and and uh, um, he was responsible for the great revival in England. Then he traveled to what we call the United States now, and uh, uh, this was in the mid 1700s that he traveled to the Americas. And he was responsible for the great revival, the great awakening that took place in the Americas. It is said that George Whitfield's face was better known in the Americas than was George Washington's face. So well known, and he went up and down the East Coast. That's where where, 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 uh, uh, civilization was at that time. And he went up and down the East Coast witnessing. He traveled back and forth between England and the Americas eight times, eight times. So, so, uh, um, he went back, back and forth eight times. So, so what I'm saying is he, he visited the Americas, I, I think, uh, well, maybe it was seven times because he visited the Americas 13 times and, uh, he died in the Americas. So he would go back and forth. The man was amazing. He would preach and it said people could hear him for miles. Benjamin Franklin is noted that he didn't believe it. So what he did is he paced around the outer circumference. And he said, this man can be heard for miles. So he had this booming voice. He preached and he it says that he would weep when he preached. And people say, you question me why I weep when I preach? Because you won't weep for your own souls. So I am weeping for you. The man was utterly driven to see people saved. You look at Charles Spurgeon, he would not let it go by without seeing people saved. So the heart of this was never methodology. Neither of these men taught methodology. Every evangelism course I had ever been in, they taught you methodology. Use this procedure, say these verses. That's all methodology. And then you go through and I would say those verses and nobody would get saved. Because it was passion to see people saved. That's what they spoke of. When you long to see people saved, then people start getting saved. So I would pray, Lord, get people saved this week. Get people saved this week. And then boom, one after another after another would start getting saved. It is passion. Passion for the lost. 
This is what you see in Paul. This is what he's teaching here. So if you think that those who teach election don't have the passion, then you've got to deal with Paul and you've got to deal with two other men, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon. Both of them taught election. You see, election, if it's just going to happen anyway, no, we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that when we go through chapter 9. But these men, these men just had this passion for seeing salvations. And it was when I started praying that the Lord would put a burning desire in me. If I go a week without seeing somebody saved, I'm telling you, I, I feel terrible. I feel terrible. It just bothers me. I don't know if, 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 for those of you who exercise a lot, if you go a week without exercising, you know how you feel? You're like, oh, I just feel so sluggish. I feel terrible. Now, those of you who don't exercise, you're like, if I exercised a week ago, I feel great. I feel like I've done my part. But for those of you who exercise a lot, you, you know, when those endorphins aren't, aren't, aren't going through you, you feel, ter- that's how I feel if people are not getting saved. Because I pray, Lord, give me salvations. This man wanted people to see, see people saved. He said, this is how much I love the nation of Israel. You think I'm speaking against them, he's going to say? No way. I love them so much. Then he says, who are, verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God be blessed forever. Amen. When you go to Romans, and we, we read this when we were going through it, in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then what is the advantage of the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? He said, Great in every respect. Great in every respect. And so then he takes us through. Now he's going to elaborate what that greatness is. He says, look, he says, The Jews, the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons. They had the adoption. This is speaking of Israel's national adoption. The national adoption, and this is mentioned in Exodus 4.22. The national adoption. And this is underscored by multiple prophets. Isaiah 63.16. Jeremiah 3.17-19. Jeremiah 31.9. And Jeremiah 31.20. That Israel had a national adoption. God adopted them. He says, Israel is my son. He says, this is why they had so much going for them. Then he says, and the glory. He says that they had the glory. This is the Shekinah glory, the visible glory, the visible manifestation of God. And this is talked about in Exodus chapter 13, 20 and 21. Chapter 16, verse 10. Chapter 24, verse 9 through 11. Chapter 15, uh, 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 and, and then chapter 24, verse 15 through 18. And chapter 40, verse 34 through 38. All the Shekinah glory Revealing of God to to the the, uh, the to the Israelites. Then he says, and the covenants. He says they had the covenants, all these covenants that were given to them. They had the Abrahamic covenant. They had the the uh, uh, the covenant of the land, or co- sometimes called the Palestinian covenant, that he, he the promise of the land. They had the Davidic covenant to David that through your offspring the Messiah would come. And then they had the new covenant that we have in Christ. 
And then there was also the, 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 uh, the covenant that was given, that was a temporary covenant, which was the covenant of the law that was given to them. The law of Moses. That was a conditional covenant. You do this and you will get it. And then, and then fifthly, he, he talks about, talks about the temple service. This ability to have the temple service, the Levitical priesthood, the, the high priesthood, the offerings, the sacrifices. He says, this is a blessing. What we have, the ability to serve in the church, is like our covenant. Like their covenant that they had of being able to minister in the temple. This ability to serve in the church is a blessing. It is a blessing to be able to serve in the church. If you don't serve in the church, if you are not active in service in the church, you really ought to be. You ought to say, where, where can I plug in? Can I help cook the breakfast? Can I help set up chairs? Can I, can I help to do things? To the extent that you are so involved that if you fail to do your job, it's going to cause problems for people. In other words, your service should not be an afterthought. Oh, I happen to be standing here? Okay, I will then set up a chair because you need chairs set up next to where I'm standing. No, I'm saying that you become a, becomes a part of your service. It is a blessing to serve in the body of Christ. You are highly blessed, just like Israel was blessed in their service in the temple. He says this was a blessing for them. And then they had the promises, the promises of God that were given to them. The promises of God that were given, specifically the messianic promises, the first coming, the second coming, the establishment of his kingdom. And then he says, of the fathers, you had the fathers, and it says the the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where does it refer to them as fathers? Deuteronomy 10, 14 and 15. Hebrews 11, verse 1, through Hebrews 12, verse 2. It keeps referring to them as the fathers. And then then it goes on. Uh, uh, he, he says, you had the fathers, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. He came according to the flesh. He was a Jew. And then he says, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Speaking of his deity. He says, all of this you have. He says, you think I don't love the Jews? You think I'm speaking against them? This is why in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the vindication of God's righteousness toward the Jews. You're going to think that he's not fulfilled the promises? He's fulfilled the promises and whatever's not fulfilled is going to be fulfilled. That's what he's going to say. This is not parenthetical because if we don't deal with this, we look at this and you say, there's all these promises to the Jews and now you're making these promises to us. Why should we believe them? Are we just going to be cast out like they were? And he's going to, and he's going to show us exactly what I was talking about. He said these things happened because of their spiritual pride and their spiritual self-sufficiency. And he says that these things, that, that what's going to happen is you're going to see that there's a blessing because there's always a remnant and the nation, the Jewish nation at large is all going to be saved. That, that you're going to see the whole nation in, in halfway through the, 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 um, the tribulation is going to come in mass to the Lord. And then he says the other thing about this is it's opened up the door for the Gentiles to come in. And he's going to explain all of this to us in this portion that some people is, say is parenthetical and they even skip it. Unless we deal with this portion. And what he's going to speak about is this portion of verse 6 onward. Now this of chapter 9 verse 6 onward, verse 6 through, through uh, uh, near the end of the chapter... 
he speaks on election. It is not hard to understand this portion. There was a portion that was hard to understand in Romans chapter 5, particularly verses 12 and 13. And, and we spoke about that. And, and uh, if you hold to these traditional views, yeah, it's hard to understand. This portion is not hard to understand, but it's hard for people to receive because it bumps up against their theology. But remember, if our theology is contrary to what the Word of God says, guess who's right? All right? All right? Then our theology might be off. We can't get away from this by skipping it. And what happens is this, I'll tell you this. This whole teaching on election makes you a much better evangelist. Makes you a much better evangelist. And, and, uh, uh, it makes you a better evangelist because of what it says in, in, uh, uh, Luke chapter 5 verse 10. Luke chapter 5 verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. In the NIV, he says you will be fishing for men. That is a wrong translation. The NIV is not a direct translation. All the Bible verses, all the Bibles that I've seen get this right except the NIV. You read the literal translation, translation, it is catching. There's a difference between fishing and catching. My friend owned a hybrid fish farm, hybrid bass farm. And he used to allow me to go into the, go to these ponds were about the size of this gymnasium and go fishing. The agreement was I would throw them back. But he allowed me to fish in a hybrid fish farm, hybrid bass farm. And I would take a little silver minnow and I would take that and I'd cast it out. As soon as that hit the water, it got a pond. And I felt like I was the greatest fisherman in the world. Every cast, I just, they just hit. I was catching fish. I get bored fishing. Because fishing you never know. But catching I know. There is a difference between fishing and catching. Jesus said, you're going to be catching men. You're going to be catching them now. This will make you a better, better able to catch people. This whole doctrine of election, because there are people out there that God has selected, that will be saved, they will be saved. I'm just going to go out and catch them. I'm just going to go reel them in. Just reel them in. It is very different. And you look at some of the greatest evangelists ever who had the most converts. I mean, they, George Whitfield is probably, they, they talk about this, other than Paul, because of the written word, George Whitfield of the people that, that, that came to the Lord. I mean, in mass, people came to the Lord through George Whitfield. Charles Spurgeon was said to have addressed 10 million people through speaking and through his, his written text. In his lifetime. In his lifetime. So, so, uh, uh, so this changes you. This really changes you. So be open to chapter 9. Remember, this is hard for people to receive. It's not hard to understand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, that through this, you would raise up more evangelists that understand, understand what it is to catch versus fish. That understand what it is to realize that there are so many fish out there that are to be caught. 
Lord, I pray your blessing upon these young people that they would love the word of God, that they would honor it, that they would see Jesus and his power bearing forth. Father, make us open to the word of God, I pray. And Lord, I pray for the unsaved, that you would get them saved, that even this day we would see people saved. Lord, I offer this up to you for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. And if you, if you would like a private Zoom session with me because you do not yet believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and you want to hear my story about how I came to the Lord, uh, we, we, uh, uh, just send me an email to tour at rice.edu. We'll get together, tour at rice.edu and, and, uh, and I will share with you. Okay? We'll get together and I'll do that. We can do it by Zoom or in person.